Well, I want to draw your attention to this 21st chapter of John's Gospel. The uh, triple question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Uh, that will figure in it, but I want to look through the chapter. Uh, Peter's left Jerusalem. He's gone, well, about 100 miles north of Jerusalem um, to Galilee. He's gone back where he came from. He's returned to his uh, former way of life. He's gone back to fishing. Um, he had left his father, uh, and he and his brother had, had gone off to follow Jesus for three years. He was a married man, and uh, presumably he had a family. And now that Jesus has died and risen again and revealed himself to him and to his disciples in the upper room, and then he's disappeared. He's disappeared for maybe a week, maybe longer. And, and Peter is just perplexed, and Peter has decided to, to go back home, to uh, return to his, his former way of life. So here is the closing chapter of, of John's Gospel. It's a sort of appendix, isn't it? It sees, comes to an end at uh, the last verse of chapter 20. And you think, well, yes, uh, that, that's really the end. And, th and then this, this chapter is tagged on, chapter uh, 21. Uh, the end of chapter 20, John has told us why he has written this gospel. He's very in your face. He's open up. He's got an um, evangelistic reason. Uh, he's not... A, neutral in any way about the task that he has undertaken to uh, write these, these chapters. He has told us about the great sermons and the signs and the miracles in order that you might believe, that you might become a believer in, in Jesus, in order that you might be persuaded of the truthfulness of Christianity. That Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is the, the seed of the woman, that he is the son of Abraham, that he is great David's greater son, that he is the son of God. And so then, having read the uh, 21 chapters of, of John's Gospel, and read them open-mindedly, and longing, seeking for the truth for yourself, uh, that the desired result would be that you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's one more thing. And there's this 21st chapter. And it needs to be plain. Because John doesn't only want to tell us about the way of salvation, but he wants to tell us of the way of discipleship. The nature of the Christian life. He wants to write about that. And he does it, he enfleshes the lesson in a person. And what better person could there be for him to describe to us the nature of the Christian life than the Apostle Peter? Peter, who had so catastrophically denied three times publicly in the open courtyard, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, the night of the betrayal, and the arrest. Now, 
John actually doesn't tell us that uh, this is not the first resurrection appearance of Jesus that Peter has seen. We are indebted to uh, the Apostle Paul, aren't we? In that summary he gives in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then in the fifth verse he says, and he appeared to Peter also. And the details of what went on on that occasion are, are not given. It must have been extraordinarily painful for Peter to look Jesus in the face. Uh, so shortly after the, the bad words and the, the cowardice that he displayed repeatedly. So I want you to look first of all in this chapter at uh, Peter's response to his failure. I said to you that some weeks have passed and he's gone back to the fishing business. And we're introduced here then uh, at this juncture uh, to an unexpected place, to uh, Gennesaret or the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, the different words that are used to describe this uh, this lake. And we, we have a selective group of, of the twelve who are there with him. Um, there's Thomas, and he's one of the first to be mentioned. Uh, Didymus, the twin. And then there's one we hardly know anything about, Nathaniel, but he comes from that area, from Cana of Galilee. And there are the sons of Zebedee, then James and John, the author of the gospel, is there. And uh, and others are there, and they're not mentioned. And one day, Simon says, well, I'm going fishing. And you understand that when he said, I'm going fishing, it's not the sort of thing that uh, some of the men will do now when um, certain fish uh, will come nearer the shore, and they'll go down with their trannies and their uh, six-packs and uh, a box of bait and some friends, and they'll sit uh, at the end of the pier, uh, where that striped little lighthouse is, and they'll cast a line into the bay. Uh, when Simon Peter says, I'm, I'm going fishing, it's not um, a guy thing. It's not a man thing that he wants to be with the boys, watching the sunset and chewing the cud with them. It's not what he's talking about. It's what he did. This is how he earned his living. This is how he supported his wife and his children and his mother-in-law. This was his job. This is what he knew about, if you asked uh, Simon Peter. So what do you do? And uh, he'd say, I'm a fisherman. Like some of you would say, well, I'm, an, I'm a doctor, I'm an electrician, um, I'm in local government, I work in the police station, I'm a teacher. Peter would say... Uh, well, I'm a fisherman. I catch fish and then uh, I've got some men and they take it down to the market and uh, they sell it and others of them cure it in salt and uh, that's what we do. So you understand then the significance of what Peter is saying in deciding to go fishing. For three years he's, he's been preaching and helping Jesus, and learning. He's done a theological course, and a practical course, in, in Christian discipleship for a few years. But when he says he's 
he's going fishing and he's moved a hundred miles and he's walked that long journey back to Galilee feels settled there he's um, a failure he's failed the Lord he's a failed Christian and there's nobody in this uh, congregation tonight Uh, no preacher no elder no deacon no old church member who doesn't understand what it means to fail the Lord not to fail in some task that we've been given but to fail in our discipleship to let Jesus down to promise him something um, to sing hymns of ardor and further to him of what we're going to do for him take my all I give you my all and then catastrophically and, and publicly we break our promise sense of failure it can cripple people can't it there are some people who if they had done what Peter had done they'd never get over it there would be some people and they would be in therapy for the rest of their lives they couldn't wake up in the morning they couldn't get out of bed they couldn't face life without the crippling and uh, debilitating thought that they'd let the saviour down and they'd let his people down how could he ever be a sent one, an apostle how could he ever be useful in the kingdom of God ever again he couldn't trust himself he'd done what he had done and maybe you know, recently you thought like that you thought of the people that you've hurt, the folk you've been tr- betrayed, n- not one or two. And you say to yourself, well, I'm a pathetic Christian. I'm an abject failure as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so here's Peter, and he's seen Jesus risen, and it's just mind-blowing. And then Jesus has gone off, and the days have gone by, and he's in limbo. I'm going fishing. Well, I know something about fishing, he thinks. I've got a bit of expertise about fishing. He knew, for example, that the best time to fish was at night because uh, there was no shadow of the boat going above the fish and they could see the boat and they knew they were in trouble if they stayed there. and They could see a net being cast out over the water. So they went at night. Sea of Galilee, it's not big. If you stand on one side of the Sea of Galilee, you can see the mountain coming down on the other side. It's a freshwater lake, and it's uh, fiercely preserved in Israel today. You can look down, you can see the bottom of it, the sandy, rocky bottom of the lake. And Peter knew. He knew it like the back of his hand. He knew where the fish were and he could describe in in detail and with expertise about the various weather patterns when the clouds came low and the the winds blew uh, from the hills that surrounded Galilee especially from the north and the east and and there would be sudden temperature drops and pressure changes Uh, he wouldn't use the language of 21st century of course 
But he knew when a storm, a devastating storm, could blow. And he knew what happened to fish at times like that and where they would go. The lake wasn't that big and he'd learned from it. He'd learned from a boy going with his father on the lake. So he'd gone back there. He'd gone back to his space. He'd gone back to his comfort zone. He'd gone back to where he was in control, where he wasn't under the authority of a man who sometimes you didn't know where he was and you didn't know what to do. And he had made a mess of this religious business. And so he'd go back to what he was familiar with and what he was good at, fishing. Secondly, I want you to see here the arrival of the risen Lord Christ. And you see what happens. There's the night and uh, the first rays of dawn. The sun is beginning to shine, uh, just rising up above the hills around the lake. And they see then they can make out a fire and a shadowy figure standing by it on the shore. It's about a hundred yards John remembered quite well, about a hundred yards from where the boat was. And uh, there's a voice then, and it cries out, and it echoes over the water, and uh, it says, friends, have you caught anything? Now, if Simon Peter had caught something, the question might not have been as irritating as it was. You know, when you've actually caught nothing, and someone says, "You, you, you caught anything? especially perhaps in the mood that Simon Peter was in, having gone back to fishing because of his failure as a disciple, and now possessing this nagging thought, he'd he'd taken these men with him, and uh, he was uh, the fisherman, and he was in charge, his boat, and uh, he's failed. He's not just a failure in religion, but he's a failure in his secular vocation too. Full stop. He's caught absolutely nothing. All night fishing with the others who, some of them had never been in a boat before. And all for nothing. Empty nets. Dirty nets. And so the voice of the stranger, have you caught anything? You notice Peter didn't answer, that the others answered. They shouted back to him in a chorus, no. (laughs) They answered, we haven't caught anything. And the, the man engages in dialogue with them then, this stranger. And he says, well, drop your nets down on the right side, the other side of the boat. Who is this man? Who is he? They'd caught nothing. And then this guy tells Peter what to do. Simon Peter is the professional. His father was a professional, probably his grandfather before him. They thought of themselves as the best fishermen on the lake. And here's this newcomer. Uh, Who is he there in the gloom? And he's telling them where the fish were. Throw your nets on the right side, he says. Uh, I don't know what tension 
Peter was experiencing what was the expression on his face. Should he do what this, this guy says? And anyway, he throws the nets out on the other side. And then immediately there's tension in the net and there's movement in the net. And uh, the fish that are there, more and more, and they are all big fish. And they're beginning to pull the net hither and yon. There's a ton of fish in the net. And then John, the author of this gospel, he recognizes it's Jesus by the fire. And Simon Peter, you know, look before you leap, Simon Peter. He dons his outer garment that he had stripped off while he was fishing and he was hot and puts it on, jumps into the water, leaps in, half wading, half swimming, feet on the bottom, pushing with his chest. There, going into the fireside on the shore in an ungainly way, makes his way as fast as he can to Jesus. He's a failure, but he must go to Jesus. He's been a prodigal. He's been guilty. He's in the place he's chosen for himself. It's not the place the Lord has chosen for him, but from where he is, he has to go to Jesus. And that's true. It's been true then, just a couple of weeks earlier when the women came and, and the fresh guilt was on him. It made him leaden-footed so that John was fleet-footed and could outrun him to the tomb. But he was there. He, he, he had to see Jesus. The Jesus he had denied. He had to see him. There were bonds of love that Jesus had cast around him and tied to himself. and Jesus was pulling him in pulling him in, pulling him into the water here and pulling him to the shore. And the third lesson I want you to see here is um, how the failure, Peter the failure, was taught again usefulness. It's a great lesson, isn't it? And you're a failure. To be taught how you can be useful again. It's not the end. It's a wonderful lesson. It's a humbling lesson. It's a painful lesson. But uh, Jesus would not allow Simon Peter to catch fish. Because that is not what Jesus wanted him to do for the rest of his life. And isn't that a mercy? Because uh, he's really a deserter. He's uh, really an escapee from the band of disciples. The number one amongst 500. Amongst the men, 120 men, and the leader of them too. Now he's trying to go back to his former way of life. And it's as though Jesus is saying to him, no, I want you to catch fish. At my behest, only at my behest, you catch more fish than 
ever you dreamed of, but when I give you permission, when I say, in my way, 153 of them, you want to catch fish, but I'm in charge of your life. I'm in charge when you're doing it your way and you're running away. I'm in charge. And uh, Jesus makes that clear because um, you see how he says to, uh, to Peter, um, bring some of the fish. Bring some of the fish. Because they're going to have breakfast together. And it's a wonderful scene. Here is Jesus in his resurrection body. And he's having breakfast. He's no spook. Um, Hamlet's ghost is ethereal and insubstantial. But Jesus is, uh, is alive. and He walks the road to Emmaus. And he has a resurrection body. And he, he's... Killed some fish. He's killed fish. And he's gutted them and he's cooking them on a fire and he's made bread and he's roasting it on, on both sides. No spook. Those of you who love food, then, um, there may be food in a new heavens and a new earth. It's an extraordinary thing that John points out to you that... Uh, Jesus already had the fish cooking on both sides. There they are. Even though he says to Simon Peter, bring, bring your fish. This is for the second helping. This is the second course. He's got the fish that they're going to start breakfast with. It's a little detail. It's a tiny thing. But you see how, how Jesus is showing his control of our lives whether we eat or drink we do it to the glory of God that even the fish that they're going to enjoy for breakfast that first course isn't the fish that that Peter's provided that Peter's caught nothing to do with Peter the Lord is going to provide for Peter's future for Peter's wife, for Peter's mother-in-law, for any children that Peter has when Peter then engages in in itinerant evangelism and church planting and writes to people in Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia and Asia Minor, Turkey, he's there. And he will supply all of Peter's needs and all his family's needs like he will supply all your needs and all my needs that's why I chose the John Newton hymn though troubles assail and dangers of fright the friends should all fail and foes all unite yet one thing assures us whatever betide the scripture assures us the Lord will provide and the lesson here that we are seeing is to do with the supply by providence and governance of all our needs, the control of Jesus, how Jesus puts a boundary and a hedge around his people and protects them from wolves that would destroy them and those that are in then 
in the Quran, he supplies all, all their needs, all their needs. They never do without what's necessary. And so he's speaking to Peter, the one who wants to get out over the wall and go back to do his own thing. I'm not going to let you run away because I've got plans for you. Like he's a plan for your life. That he's got something for you to do with your life. And it's important to him. Well, it's wonderfully encouraging. You've let the Savior down. Well, Jesus won't let you run away. Running away isn't the answer. Running off to your former life, it isn't the answer. Going off by yourself and feeling sorry for yourself and licking your wounds, it's not the answer. Isn't that an encouraging truth that every step of the way, all that hundred mile journey back to Galilee and back on the, on the boat and back fishing again, it was, it was all under the, under the control of the helmsman who leads all his creatures and all their actions in every providence that happens to them. Jesus is watching over Simon Peter when he's flat when he's low in spirit, when he's frustrated and defiant and when he's making bad decisions, the good shepherd is there. The good shepherd is there waiting for him. That the boat will come within a hundred yards and then he's able to talk to him and bring him ashore. And the means that Jesus adopts to rehabilitate Peter, what Jesus has to do, he has to humble Peter. Well, it's familiar, isn't it? But it's so basic. It's so basic for me always. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Two or three times that saying is found in the Bible because it's so important. It's the basis of the Christian life. God resisting. God standing before a prophet on a donkey, sending uh, an angel with a sword there. And the donkey can see, but the proud prophet can't see. And he is resisted, and he's beating the donkey for him to go. But the donkey can see the judgment that lies before him if he does what the foolish prophet wants. God needs to humble us because God gives grace. Grace is omnipotence acting to redeem us. And God gives that grace to humble men and women. It starts off, doesn't it, in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs, theirs alone is the kingdom of God. So he has to meet the Lord in this way. In this encounter. Um, he's seen him before. And talked with him before. So that he's without excuse. For running off as he does from Jerusalem. But now he's meeting him again. And it's a, a much more probing and searching. And, and pastoral relationship that he has with him now. There's work 
that Jesus has Peter to do and his work that Jesus has me to do and you to do before you become laid aside and can't do it any longer. So it's all about being brought down to size. It's all about the balloon of pride that needs to be pricked and just to reveal how, how inadequate we are, how small, how little we are, that without him we can do nothing. And we all know the verse, but do we really appreciate what that verse is saying? Peter couldn't even catch a fish, one fish, after a night of fishing, without Jesus. He needed the help and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. We, we sing about a heart to praise my God. We say, oh, that's what I need. Most of all, and that's so true, that, that, that the real problems that come into our lives come out of our hearts. Because out of the heart are all the issues of life. And we sing a hymn over a heart to praise my God. And we say in that hymn that we want a heart resigned, submissive, meek, my dear Redeemer's throne. That's what we want. We want Jesus Christ to sit on not a proud, rebellious heart like uh, a rodeo and uh, a cowboy sitting on the back of of a bucking bull but uh, our hearts then listening to the master's voice and submissive and if he says go we go if he says stop we stop if he says do this then we do exactly what he says so many Christians uh, are like modern textiles that say they are shrink resistant and uh, Maybe that's you, and it's me tonight. We like to think of ourselves as shrink-resistant. But Jesus says if we're, if we're going to be useful in the kingdom of God, then um, you must say what John said. I must decrease, and he must increase. That's, that's what we need. I want to be poor in spirit. I want to mourn. I want to be hungry for righteousness. And God says, I I know I've created those yearnings and longings in you. And I am ensuring that the desires I've planted in your heart and life will be fulfilled. I won't stop. I won't stop until you're a real man. And... Jesus Christ is God's great definition of what a man is. A real woman. The archetypal person. The humble and meek, dependent, seeing this great God. And the, the fourth thing then I want you to see uh, in this chapter are the requirements for happy discipleship. Because that's the background then to the probing three questions that uh, Peter is asked (laughs) by Jesus Christ. Now I'm not going to go into uh, 
all the grammatical whys and wherefores, you know, that uh, the third question uh, that uh, Jesus asks. He changes the Greek word for love there, um, and it isn't uh, then the more familiar word for love, agape, but it's the word philia. And so uh, a lot is made by old-fashioned preachers um, who say then, Jesus is saying at the end, uh, well, do you even like me? Or how much do you like me? He's saying, you know, they'd have spoken in Aramaic together anyway. And there isn't the, it's a much more limited language in its vocabulary. They wouldn't have the, the four words that the Greeks had for, for love. So I don't think there's any significance because the, the two words are used virtually interchangeably in, in the New Testament. And so we won't go down that road at all. I think what is significant is the relentless repetition, the relentless probing and questioning by Jesus. It's Jeremy Paxman, isn't it, there? And here is uh, the Lord Jesus, and he's saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He's saying. And why does he say it three times? Well, because Peter so publicly had denied him three times. So like a little bell going off in your head, um, isn't it? I'm quite certain that when Jesus asked him the third time, and uh, Peter was irritated, surely you can, you can pick that up. Uh, the NIV says he was hurt on the third occasion. He was grieved when again he asked him. Perhaps he didn't hear him uh, Uh, hear hear his answer the first time so he said uh, do you love me but when he asks him three times you can sense the pain and there's a little knock then at Peter's heart a little memory jolt at that time remember remember Peter you you denied me publicly three times let me ask you three times then to Do you love me? If we've denied the Lord and denied it as um, strongly as, as Peter had, then the reason for this is um, a heart reason. It's because of uh, the coldness of our hearts. That's the reason. We've got a problem with our hearts relationship. So often it goes back to that in our lives, isn't it? It's not a cosmetic reason. It's not some engineering that we can work up that can program us. But um, there's something wrong in us that we can do what Peter did. You love Peter. We, we, we love Peter, don't we? There's a sense in which Paul is just overwhelms us. And, uh, we just would not say a word when Paul came. We just uh, listen to what he had to say to us because he's right. But uh, Peter's like us. and we, we, we can talk to him. And, uh, 
we can see Peter warts and all and we, we blurt out things just like Peter blurts out things and you see the great heart of Peter here um, and he replies from the third you know everything about me oh, you know all things you know all about me you know that I love you you know that he was aware that there was something in his heart that, that, that there was a seed of affection an acorn of affection it was there and he showed it by jumping overboard and splashing his way to the water to be the first to be with him. Love did that to him. You know that I love you. And we're like that. We can never say we don't love Jesus. But we can always say, oh, I wish I loved you more. I let you down. I love you and I let you down. And I let you down and I love you. And sure, Peter, in this tension, this warfare... The flesh is lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And they're, they're contrary to one another and we live in, in the tension of, uh, of Romans 7, don't we? The good that we would, we don't do and the evil that we would not, that we, we, we do. And we, uh, we are so easily provoked by incessant questions and by misunderstandings. Say, I love you, Lord. I do love you. I do love you. And wives, when their husbands say, I love you, there's something that says, well, show me that you love me. Where's the evidence that you love me? Uh, Words are not enough. We, We say, well, what about actions? Actions speak louder than words, we say. It's important to vocalize our love for someone, isn't it? To say, I love you. It's a wedding anniversary. I love you. We hear and say those things. But our words must be validated by our, by our actions, by our lives. You know, Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. Learner and Lowe's words there, aren't they? Don't talk of the stars burning above. If you're in love, show me. Sing me no song. Read me no rhyme. Don't waste my time. Show me. Don't talk of June. Don't talk of fall. Don't talk at all. Show me, (laughs) she says. Because she's this smarmy professor who's trying to teach her to talk proper. And she's weary of it all. She wants a, an experience of affection. She wants a life of credible love. So how do we show that we, that we love the Lord Jesus? Well... We feed his sheep. That's it. We take care of his sheep. We look after his lambs. He's being called to be an apostle. He's being called to be a pastor. He's being called to write letters to churches that he cares about. 
He's being called to lay down his life for Jesus. And the evidence of uh, his sincerity in stating that he loved the Lord Jesus would be the way in which he fulfilled what uh, Jesus commissioned him to do that breakfast at dawn by the lake when he was a young man 50 years early when he said feed my sheep then if you love me look after my lambs if you love me and he says to him in verse 18 uh, well when you were younger you used to dress yourself and you could make your own independent judgments you could choose what color cloak you would wear that day and where you would go and when you would go out and you'd say to your wife I'm going down to the city gates to talk to the men or going down to the boat to see if the men have repaired the nets and you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to there'll come a time when you can't do that any longer you're too old, you're too frail you can't walk where you wish and you have to have someone to hold up your hands and they, they put it through the sleeves and they dress you because you are so frail you can't even hold a cup and put it to your lips any longer you can't do that you have to be fed, you have to be dressed, you have to be washed. That comes to you. It'll come. It'll come soon enough. Others will take you. And others would take Peter one day. They would take him rough hands. Not loving hands, not his wife's hands now. But rough hands would take him. Because Jesus was talking now in the vision that he has of all our lives and their future and old age and death. And he talked about the death here by which Peter would glorify God. And the tradition is, of course, that he was crucified and, and at his own request he was unworthy to be crucified in the same way as his Lord. But he... He desired to be crucified upside down. He was unworthy just to be nailed as Jesus was to the cross. And all that then, all that, um, not just having breakfast here, but my life uh, feeding the sheep, feeding the lambs, and dying at an old age, and And so he turns the, the conversation around. And he says, what about him? What about him then? <laughs> John writes it. Talked about me, he says. And uh, you've said that, haven't you? you? You've said some of those things. You've said these words to your children. Never mind about him now. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about your life and your defiance and your disobedience. I know he can be disobedient too. She can be bad. But now let's, let's talk about you. Now, Peter. And there's just one requirement, Peter, I'm making about you. And that's follow me, verse 22. That's the great thing. Follow me. Follow me. And that's the 
word that we'll end with tonight then, the, uh, the future for 2015 and for whatever years that remain before us, that there'll be years in which we are following Jesus. I will follow Jesus all the way. Um, they're written on my mother's tombstone. I will follow Jesus all the way. It was a hymn she sang very often and I loved it and sang it myself. And it's, it goes back to this, doesn't it? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the commission, the risen saviour that he gives to us. That's to be the future for us. Um, Jesus says, if you attempt to, to gain your life, to live for yourself, you lose it. You, you miss out. But uh, if you lose yourself in, in me, and be preoccupied with everything that's beautiful and holy and loving and powerful and life-transforming and enriching as Jesus is, if you live for me, then you'll find life. That's where it comes from. This is a wonderful chapter. And this is what uh, John is teaching us at the end of his gospel. He's told us all about Jesus, 20 chapters, all about Jesus, all about his glory, his great works, the signs that he's done, what he's done on behalf of sinners. And now in this last chapter, he's saying, follow him. This great one. This Colossus. And we are to follow him wherever he leads, through thick and thin, though troubles assail and dangers affright. We, we, we follow him. Well, are you, are you prepared to do that? If it's Kenya, like it was for a young man here, not long ago, and he went and gave 40 years to Kenya, will it be that for you? If there's a road of difficulty that's lying before you, will you follow him? Follow the one who will never leave you nor forsake you. If he takes away someone you love very dearly, will you say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And drink the cup that he has given you to drink and keep following him and following him with your hand in, in his. And the footsteps will be there. How he supported you and led you along that sandy path. That's what discipleship is all about. It means coming an end to yourself and your plans. And saying, well, I'll just look to the Lord. That the Lord will guide. And the Lord will provide. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word to us now. Thank you for being such a pastor to Peter and such a pastor to us too. Keep us, we pray. Keep us following the Lord Jesus all the way and uh, take from us every escape route. Close them down. 
and every temptation to be a deserter of the cause and a lover of the world again. Mortify those desires within us and fan the flames, stir the fires within us of love for thee, our Savior and our God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.